Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to see you all this morning and to be with you, church family, online. We love you. We're glad you're tuned in and joining with us this morning. Sometimes people have to become something else in order to accomplish a purpose. In World War II, Winston Churchill started a secret agent school when you want to join that. And it was a really rigorous school with mental and physical exercises they had to do in order to train them to eventually go behind enemy lines to accomplish a purpose. And there was a TV show years ago that my wife and I watched where they brought this together. And what they did is they took people from today and then they made them go through that training program once again to see how well they would do. And also historically, you could learn about how it was. It was a neat show. They put them in a room and one of the tasks is they had to create a key that would fit in the keyhole and get them out of that room uh, with just the materials that they gave them. And it was really neat to watch. And from what I've heard, I can't verify if it's true. I heard this actually happened to somebody where they were locked down in a hospital under some kind of authority. And they made a key out of soap, smuggled it to the nurse. The nurse goes out, gets someone to make a copy. They bring it back and they're able to escape and actually get out of there. How cool is that? One of the other things in the episodes they did is physical things. And at the end of the season, one of the physical tasks actually gave me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies. And being someone who's athletic and likes to move around, I thought I could fare a little better, but maybe not. They had to climb up this side of this mountain that was almost vertical in my mind of just going up steps. But I don't know, it was just like a little too much. And what's interesting about the program as well is it was everyday people that were coming and being a part of this. They weren't going and recruiting Division I athletes or Olympians or ex-Olympians. You had average people that you might see at the store, walking down the street, driving a car, go through this program. Now, after they were trained, what was the goal? To send them behind enemy lines, places such as France, and they had to become, keyword, they had to become like the people of whom they were among now. They had to walk like them, look like them, talk like them, or else the mission would be in jeopardy. From what I heard, Britain sent over 9,000 secret agents during that time. Unfortunately, most of them, a lot of them did not return, but it is said that they helped speed the war up six months faster than maybe what it would have been. This December, we are going to be doing an Advent series called Becoming Christ. And we're gonna be looking at what did the Son of God have to become in order to be the Messiah the Father wanted him to be, in order to be the Messiah that we needed him to be. We're gonna look at a handful of these this month. Today, we're gonna look at one and explore the richness of it together. Today, we are gonna learn that in order to become our Christ, the Son of God had to become human. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter one, beginning in verse one. John 1.1 1, 1 is not our main text this morning, but it's a text we have to look at because we need to understand who the Son of God was before he became human in order to understand the rich, the depth, the amazingness of this becoming in which he actually did on behalf of us. So John chapter one, beginning in verse one, it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. There are three things we learn about the Son of God here in his pre-incarnate state. That is before he became human, before he took on human flesh. The first one is this, he was the word. 
The son of God was the word of God. And you might go, why in the world did John choose that word? I'm not even sure exactly how to explain it. It's easy to memorize. Most of us probably know John 1.1. You could recognize it. Oh yeah, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But what does the word actually mean? What did John mean when he used it? I follow D.A. Carson here. I think he's really smart. Hermeneutically, he says, we got to go back to the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about the word? So that way, when John uses this word, it makes a whole lot more sense to us of what he is saying. So we're going to explore the Old Testament briefly together. Go with me to Psalm 33, beginning in verse 6. What does the Old Testament say about the word of God, who is the Son of God? Psalm 33, verse six. It says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the breath and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. How did God make the heavens? He made them by his word. When you leave this building today, when you walk out of your house in the morning, when you leave work in the afternoon and you are coming home and you look up, do you know what you were seeing? You're seeing outside. You're seeing outer space. You're seeing the clouds and the sky. You see the stars. You see a really big star called the sun, some 90 million, billion miles away. I don't remember exactly. Really big, a lot bigger than the earth, really hot. Where did that come from? The word of God made that. The son of God put that into existence. Every day, millions of people stop and they watch the sunset. They pause and they take in its immense majesty and greatness and beauty. What are they doing? They are seeing the very work. They're adoring, enjoying the very work of the son of God. Can we even begin to comprehend the power, the wisdom and the beauty of the son of God to be able to create outer space as we know it? Go with me next to Jeremiah. Chapter one, verse four. Jeremiah chapter one, verse four. Let's see what else we learn about the word of God in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter one, beginning in verse four. It says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. That means I set you apart for a very specific purpose. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah, it was revealed to him the thoughts of God. How did Jeremiah come to know the thoughts of God about him before he was born? How did Jeremiah come to know that God had called him to be a prophet to the nation of Israel, his people at this time? Because the word of God, the son of God revealed it to him. The son of God is not only involved in creation, he's also involved in revelation, knowing and declaring the very thoughts of God himself. Jump back with me to Psalm 107, verse, beginning in verse 20. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 20. It says this, He sent out his word and healed them. Notice what the word does. Healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Here we see the word of God, the son of God, bring healing 
to people, bring restoration to people. And not just that, deliverance from danger. We'll do one more. Isaiah 55 verse 11. Probably a familiar passage, but we're gonna look at it through the angle of the word of God. Isaiah 55 verse 11. Isaiah writes, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that purpose. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What do we learn about the word of God here? He accomplishes the will of God every single time. When he goes out, he does not fail to do the very purpose for which God sent him. So let's put it all together. What do we learn about the son of God here? He's involved in creation. He's involved in revealing God's thoughts. He's involved in restoring people, delivering people from danger. And he accomplishes the will of God every time he acts, every time he does anything. When John speaks of in the beginning was the word, that's what he's talking about. The son who is involved in all these amazing things of creation and revelation and salvation. That was the first thing. We know the son was the word. The second thing we learned from John 1.1 1, 1 is that the son was also God. What God was in his very essence, whatever that is exactly, so was the son exactly like the father. What was the father like? What was God like in scripture? This is so much fun. Let's look at it together. God, we are told in scripture is everlasting. Psalm 90 verse two, before the world was made, before the mountains were brought forth, he says from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Let's play a game. Let's get on a timeline. And you get the fastest vehicle you can think of a jet, a super jet, whatever's really fast. And I want you to haul in that jet to the, to the beginning of time. And you keep going as far to the beginning as you can go and you try to find the beginning of God. Guess what? You'll never find it. And you get tired because you've been going for light years in this direction. So you stop and you go this way, fine. I'll find the end of God. And you go this way on the timeline and you go millions and billions and trillions of years and you get exhausted and you go, you know what? I don't think God ends because he doesn't. He is everlasting. A.W. Tozer described it like this, from vanishing point to vanishing point, forever in both directions, you are God. A study of physics tells us that space, matter, and time must all occur together. So when God created matter, he also created space for the matter, and he also created time for the space and the matter to exist in. So time is not something that God is subject to or in in the same way that we are. God actually created time in the sense of a succession of one moment after another. So he lives outside of time. Therefore, he can see all of time as if it just happened. And not only can he see all of time, the beginning from the end, he can see every point in time as if it never ends, as if it's just a perfect still shot in all detail. And he can see time going he can also interject and interact in time when he feels like it. Are you having fun yet? When you really break it down, the attribute of God's eternalness, this is amazing. Holy cow, why am I stressed out? God is amazing. That's just his eternality. Scripture also tells us that he's omnipresent. You wanna play another game? David did, kind of, go with me on this. Psalm 139, let's play a game. God, you close your eyes and count to 10 and I'm gonna go hide and let's see if you can find me. And David goes up to the heavens. All right, God, where am I? Wait, you're already here? 
How did you do that? Okay, I'll go to Sheol. I'll go to the grave. I'll hide under there. Definitely won't find me. He's already there as well. I'll go to the far side of the sea. I'll go find the deepest trench in the ocean. And what did David say? Even there, even there, I can't get away from you. You can't hide from God. You can't get away from his presence. He's where you're at. He's already where you're going. And he's with you completely on the way. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. God says he fills heaven and earth. There is not a place in all of existence you can go that he is not there and not fully there in his whole being in some, capacity, in some way that he is. But Solomon, Solomon reminds us, 1 Kings 8, 27, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. So not only does he fill all of space, but he's more than all of that. Wayne Grudem, he encourages us to be careful. He gives us a warning. Don't think of God in time in terms of size and spatial dimensions. God is not the same way we are in our physical matter of creation that we are. And that leads us to the next one. God is spirit. What does that mean? God exists without a material, corporeal body in existence like we do. And you keep going. This is fun. God's all powerful. He can do anything that's an object of his will. He's all knowing. A.W. Tozer, again, I think gives a really great, succinct thought to this. He knows everything instantly, effortlessly, and fully. When you type in in your search engine and you want to find something and you go, boom, enter, 0.0043 seconds, you get a million hits. God doesn't even need the 0.0043 seconds. He already knows it. Instantly, effortlessly, and fully. David knew this. He said, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Not only does he know it before you say it, he fully knows it before you say it. Can we begin to comprehend the knowledge of God? We can't. I can't. If you can, come help me out. We keep going, right? We can go forever on this. God is holy. God is compassionate. He's wrathful against sin. He's merciful. He's forgiving. Why am I telling you all this? Because this describes the essence and nature of God. And if that's what God is, guess what that means for the son? The son is all of this and more, just as the father is. I want you to feel the weight of that. Because when he becomes something else, you're going to go, wow, that is incredible. So John 1 and 1, here's what we've seen so far. The son is the word. We've seen what that means in the Old Testament. We see that the son is God. He's divine. We also see thirdly that the son was in relationship with the father and the spirit. They lived in eternity and what we call a trinity in a perfect, harmonious relationship. No sin, no problems, no fighting, no struggles over the bathroom. Just kidding. You get the idea though. None of that. It was perfect. Now, here was the plan. God made a plan to send the word, to send his son to the earth to rescue us. What, or to send his Christ, I mean, to send his Messiah. What did the son of God have to do now in order to become the Christ that the father wanted to send and the Christ that we needed? He had to become what? Human. Go with me now to John 1:14. This is our main text for this morning. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so the eternal, divine, all-powerful, all-wise, omnipotent son of God did what? He became human like you and me. I need my phone because there's something on it. Be right back. I want to take you through, because it's said in such a succinct, rich way, the Westminster Confession, when it talks about Christ. So it'll be on your screen, and we're going to read a little bit of it together. I'm going to walk you through it. It says this, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. We've already done that. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. We know this. We went through it. It blew our minds. He did when the fullness of time was come, he took upon himself man's nature. What does that mean when he took upon man's nature? He took upon the, um, with all the essential properties and the common infirmities, everything that is essential to being a human being the son of God took upon himself. Yet he was without sin. He did not have a sin nature in the same way that we did. He will take our sin later and that'll be a part of the story in the rest of December. But for now, just know that. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So putting this together now, two whole perfect and distinct natures. What natures is he talking about? the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person. And how were they joined? Without conversion, composition, or confusion. In other words, they were joined together like this. They still fully kept their natures intact. They were not mixed. They were not convoluted. Jesus did not become a third substance hybrid creature. No, he still had to be fully like you, and he still had to remain being fully God. That's why they're joined together and they're not mixed. They're not confused. He's not two people. He's one person. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And so if you were to choose in the Bible, the greatest miracle, what do you think you would choose? What do you think it is? Creation of matter out of nothing. That's impressive creating a human beings in God's image. That's pretty cool. How about giving someone their sight back? How about giving someone their legs back? How about raising someone from the dead? How about wrestling with the sinner's heart and changing that? J.I. Packer argues that this John 1.14 is the greatest miracle in the entire Bible. Because here we see the omnipresent son of God place himself into the womb of Mary. Here we see the invisible son of God become visible. Here we see the son of God who is spirit now have a heart, lungs, a brain, eyes, nose, mouth, teeth, gums, a skeletal system. We'll put some veins in there to pump it out. He got skin now. We see the son of God who is eternal, who has no lineage. Now all of a sudden he is a lineage. He is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the son of Adam. We see him subject himself to the common language of people, to the weather, to temperatures. God, when it rains, he doesn't get cold. 
ah, where's my, where's my umbrella? He doesn't get bothered by the sun and get sunburned. Those things don't affect God. Temperature, air pressure, it doesn't impact him. Now the son of God is subject himself to that. And I think of all the things, and I, I don't want to say this in like any kind of a sacrilegious way, just in an amazing way. The son of God subjected himself to our sweats, to going to the bathroom, to getting sick, all of that stuff. Wow, the son of God did that. Isn't that something? Perhaps the best, one of the best illustrations I've heard, and it falls remarkably short, is to say the word, the son of God becoming man, would be like you becoming a snail. Now, how would you like to go from being someone who's able to walk and to jog to now you can only move 0.03 miles per hour? <laughs> you can move up to three inches a minute. That's it. That would be frustrating. You could fall down and go further than that. <laughs> how would you like to be the size you are and then compressed into a snail that is 0.02 inches big. And if you're really lucky and you get to be the size of Shaq, you get to be 27 inches big. <laughs> but I don't know how, those are pretty rare, I'm sure. <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of those. The son of God put himself into that position. Now, how would we really know it's him when he came? The, doesn't the flesh kind of veil that? Like we can't really see it anymore. I mean, how do you can put all that into a human body but still recognize it? Well, the news is good. John tells us in chapter one, verse 14, which we read, we saw his glory. We saw it. How can you see the glory of the sun when it was put and compressed into all that? Because the, 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 the flesh, although veiling the glory, it also revealed the glory at the same time. How did he do this? We've been reading about it in John for, for weeks and for months now, by the way he spoke, by the actions that he did. If someone came and started healing people's eyes, legs, raising someone from the dead, you'd be like, you were a very different kind of person. You were a very different kind of person. Perhaps the other best illustration I've heard, and I've used this before, so I'm gonna use it again because I think it's helpful, is the force. In Star Wars, there's a thing called the force. It's this invisible power that holds the whole Star Wars universe together. And people can access it. They can choke people. You can change people's minds. These are not the droids you were looking for. You can call objects to yourself. It's pretty powerful. Now imagine if the force became a person. You'd be like, whoa, I got to see this. Does he get a lightsaber? I want to see what he does. When the force became flesh, people would still be able to recognize and see it. And that's the point I'm getting at. When the son of God became man, we still saw it. God still revealed and we still know and can be positive. This truly is the son of God. And in the same glory, he says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. These are two words that summarize the glory God revealed of himself in Exodus 34. When God passed by Moses, declared his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the great God, compassionate, loving mercy, something like that. I don't remember the words exactly, but that same glory Moses saw, they now saw it in the person of Jesus Christ who has come and has taken on flesh. He didn't stop being God, but he now took on the additional flesh like you and me. God, who took on now an XY chromosome, cells, DNA, it is incredible what he has done. But here's a question, why did he do this? Why, can't, why didn't the son of God just snap his fingers in heaven? You're all saved, it's all good, I'll see you in a little bit. 
Why did he have to go through this trouble? Why did he have to become human? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter two, beginning in verse 14. Hebrews chapter two, beginning in verse 14. The author of Hebrews writes and he says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So there's a few things going on here. What's gonna be central to them is death. And then from that death, things are gonna get accomplished. So can God die? No, can the son of God die? No, he cannot die. But when he took on flesh, he now took on the ability to taste death. And as he tasted death, many things were now accomplished or happened when he did it. The first one he tells us in Hebrews here is that he destroyed the power of the devil. What does that mean? Does the devil hold this key, this power of death, and he gets to decide who lives and who dies? Is he sitting on a throne in hell in charge and telling people what's up? No. I think that the devil having power over death is an accusatory power. It is, a, I put my finger in your face and say, look it, you sin, you're in trouble. There's power now over you. And I can declare that because you sinned, now you die. When Jesus, when the son of God died in the flesh, he broke that power. The devil can no longer take his finger and stick it in your face and say, you're a sinner, you deserve death. No, because you point back to Christ and you say, I'm with him. You remember the cross and you say, I'm covered by the blood which was spilled by the shadow of the cross there and I am forgiven of all my sins. You have no power over to declare me in that way guilty before God. Part of the reason he became human was to destroy the work of the devil. And when he died, that's what he did. We continue on here, there's more. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He needed to die also because he needed to die as a sacrifice for your sin. We know this. We've heard this. This is very common. But because we've sinned, there's a penalty. And instead of God making you pay the penalty, he sent his son to become flesh so he could fully represent you and substitute in your place. You deserve jail time. You deserve the chair. You deserve whatever analogy you want. And he said, I will take that for you. Move out of the way. And he goes and he takes it. Part of this is because God is a just God. God is wrathful towards sin. He hates sin. And when he died, he not only paid for your sins, he satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. He took God's wrath and he satisfied it. That means God is no longer angry or upset or feeling wrathful toward the actions in which you have done. Can I get a deep breath? Can I get a thank you, Lord? It's one of my biggest struggles, wanting to be perfect. Don't want God to be mad at me. And it's like, no, I can't do that. I got to cling to Jesus. And there I know, not only has the power of the devil been wiped out, but the wrath of God, the guilt of my sin, it is all taken care of. That's why Christianity is such good news. No other faith, no other religion, no other person can give that to you. There's a bonus here too. 
is a great bonus. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows what it feels like to be tempted to sin, to be tempted to doubt God, to reject God. I imagine he was also tempted with lust and all these other things. He never gave in. He felt the pressure. He felt the weight. He felt whatever the experience exactly was, but he never gave in. He was perfect. And because he did that, he is able to help you when that temptation comes for you to click on that button, to take a second look, to cheat on something, to take a second or to cut a corner, whatever it is. And you remember the son of God knows this temptation and you cling to him, help me, carry me through this. You got through it. I know that you can carry me through it without sinning as well. As we begin this Advent season, we are looking at the things that the son of God has become. And today we see that in order to become the Christ, the Messiah we needed, he had to become human. While remaining God, he took on flesh in the one person of Jesus Christ. Remember this season, arguably the greatest miracle in the Bible. The son of God became like you and me. And remember why. To break the power of the devil, to satisfy the wrath of God, to forgive you of your sins. What else do you need? Whatever else you can think of, Christ supplies that as well by the riches of his grace. Amen? Let's start the season being thankful, being in awe, and being amazed at what our God has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the plan of salvation which you have done in sending your Son in the likeness of man to redeem us from our sins, to be the mediator, the faithful high priest we needed. You have taken care of everything. I pray that your people this morning would sit in that reality that Jesus, you are all in all. And for those who don't know you, I pray they would turn and they would confess your name, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, repent of their sin, and find new life. Lord, bless us as we now sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.